the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Welcome to today's Farm Advisory Service podcast. This is the second podcast in a series relating to fodder beet for livestock. And as we explained in the first podcast, fodder beet requires careful transition of livestock to prevent any ruminant upsets such as acidosis and death. This podcast is going to cover the various species. So we're going to look at cattle and we're going to look at sheep that graze fodder beet. They vary in how selective they are and the transition varies for the different species as well. How we go about troubleshooting problems is also slightly different, so we're going to cover them individually. I'm Kirsten Williams, a beef and sheep consultant with SEC Consulting. And again, we're very lucky to be joined today by Dr. Jim Gibbs, all the way from New Zealand. He's a vet, a ruminant nutritionist and a fodder bee expert. And he has been absolutely instrumental into developing grazing systems and transition out in New Zealand uh, for over a decade now. So he is very, very suited and very knowledgeable in the field of fodder beet. So, Jim, again, welcome today. And I wonder if we start on sheep and if you could just maybe explain how the transition goes for sheep, how we prepare and how we get the sheep onto the crop. Well, thank you, Kirsten. It's a, again, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, greetings to the Scottish audience. Um, in the last uh, podcast, we spent quite some time talking about some of the peculiarities of the beet crop and why transition to that crop was uh, a practical reality in terms of both production and specifically in terms of animal health. So by starting on uh, an individual livestock class tonight, we'll take that a little further. But by starting with sheep, we'll have to explain something that is um, is, is a little counterintuitive, but is true. The, the practical reality is that uh, having said all that we did about controlling uh, intake in that first period uh, in transition, we're really talking about other ruminant classes and not sheep. Sheep, for all purposes intent, don't have a transition period. They, they don't have a requirement uh, at all for management to restrict their intake over that uh, initial period. They regulate their own intake differently on beet than any of the other species and they do it very well. And it's vanishingly, vanishingly rare to have clinical acidosis in, uh, in sheep of any class. So the transition uh, issues around that we'll discuss around sheep are some practical ones on uh, how they're run, how they're introduced to that crop, and what some of the preparatory things that we do before they go on. So the first thing to say with them is that the, the classic uh, transition onto beet crop for sheep mobs would be that they'd be run on and off for a couple of hours, for a couple of days, and then they'd be locked on. Now, the interesting point about that is they have almost identical periods of time as cattle in adjusting to full intakes on the crop. And we know this from the, the research work where we've measured this uh, very carefully. They still take about three weeks before they achieve their absolute maximum intakes uh, from beet. But they don't have any of the difficulties in the early stages that cattle do. They regulate their own intake very well and they will regulate themselves up to those full intakes with no difficulty at all. 
even if they're put on in the absence of any other feed or supplement uh, in that early period. However, the difference in that transition period in terms of preparation between cattle, particularly uh, older, larger cattle and sheep, uh, could be put down to two things. And the first of these and the most important of these is that they are spectacularly sensitive to clostridial diseases uh, when they're first put onto the crop. Um, in When we come around a little later and in a subsequent uh, podcast, we're going to talk specifically about some of the issues with clostridial diseases and how they're manifested in cattle. But to suffice to say here, you don't see them at the early stage at all. You only see them well after you've achieved maximum intakes. And sheep, that's not true. So in that early period, within uh, a few days, you in, in non-vaccinated animals, you start to see uh, death. So the only clinical sign that you normally see is sudden death. And the normal standard clostridial vaccination program that uh, most of the farmers would undertake anyway is very effective in um, uh, mitigating this. You Normally, if they're vaccinated well, you'll have relatively little trouble. Sometimes with lambs, they require an extra vaccination, but by and large, for the, um, for the older stock, the normal clostridial vaccination or a booster prior to going on for the ewes is, um, is perfectly adequate to do it. In terms of other preparation for sheep before they go on, uh, there's no larval burden for parasites, gut worms, at all on the crop. And if they're not being co-grazed on a pasture, and that would be relatively common in New Zealand for that to happen, if they're not being co-grazed anywhere on a pasture, then the time that they're on the crop, they have no worm larval intake at all. So what we would mostly do in cases for the ewes is that they would be drenched before they went on to the beet crop for winter. And while they're on that crop, they're not going to gather any more larvae, so therefore their worm burden remains really low. And then the third thing in terms of preparation is uh, dependent on the region that you're in, but that is that um, beet has a very high uh, water load, so therefore they're um, excreting a lot of water and a number of the um, minerals uh, can be affected by those really high water loads and some of the trace elements in particular. So you have to be reasonably careful that uh, the regional trace element deficiencies are attended to. So uh, that, of course, varies a lot depending on where you are and so local veterinary opinion on that is uh, very important. But um, in, as a general rule of thumb in New Zealand, the two that we run into trouble with are selenium and copper, and they're exacerbated by the relatively high uh, urinary outflows that you have when you're eating a lot of water. So the standard uh, transition policy would be that they're um, prepared and that the crop is set up. And as we said before, um, the distance across that uh, linear distance across the wire is a really important component in enabling stock to have equal access to the crop, independent of your allocation. You still need to make sure that they have good access to it. And the working rule of thumb is that it's three to four ewes for every metre of that wire in front of them. They're not as sensitive as cattle are to being squeezed on that. And so there are cases where that, that figure is uh, higher, but as a general rule of thumb, it solves a lot of problems if you stick to that. Of course, because they don't regulate their intake the same way, there's no requirement for the headland that we spoke about with cattle. Um, what would typically happen is that they're given a fairly large break and that they're put in there to chew it all off and effectively they make space for themselves. However, there's something that we're going to talk about with um, 
all classes of sheep. So it doesn't really matter whether it's ewes or lambs in this case. And that is that in most most of the large systems, they're put on there in fairly large uh, mobs. So the, the largest sort of mob size we'd have on single crops in New Zealand would be something in the vicinity of um, 3,000 or so. So in uh, groups that size, you can appreciate there's going to be a fairly long uh, face. And because sheep will normally have more than one wire, unlike cattle, um, there's interest in not moving that every day. And so it's not uncommon to have uh, two-day or on occasion three-day breaks. One thing that's really important to remember, and this comes into play when they're uh, initially being transitioned on, is that when you first put them onto the crop, they'll pretty much promptly eat all of the leaf in front of them. And in the last uh, podcast, we mentioned that the leaf contains most of the protein and also most of the calcium and phosphorus. And so without that leaf being balanced, uh, within three days, uh, without that protein intake, because the protein content of the bulb, despite all of its energy, is relatively low, what the sheep will do is reduce their intake. If they don't have sufficient protein, then they can't keep that intake up. And what they'll do is they'll reduce that intake. So you have to be careful in making space for them in transition that that break is not more than approximately three days of what they're going to be eating anyway. And if it is, uh, you have to be uh, cautious that you're putting some other protein source in there. And the final point on that transition with sheep is the practical reality. Because they are regulating their intake and they're not at maximum intake when they go on there, by and large, they're going to require in that transition period more supplement than they will later on if indeed supplements are being fed. And in most cases in transition, supplement will be fed simply because they're not going to be having full intakes of beet. So particularly for the um, gestating ewes, they're not going to have full intakes of that for the first week or so in particular. So access to some other feed to restore them to a full diet is relatively important. Um, a, a very common way that that would be done in New Zealand would be by co-grazing. So they would have a, a layoff paddock next door where they were strip grazed forward on uh, pasture over that first period. And then by the end of that, they'd be uh, locked onto the beat. So the main the main things there to, to highlight would be sheep self-regulate. So they're, they're putting themselves slowly and surely onto the beat. Having them prepared beforehand, having a clostridial vaccination, trace elements before they go on, ensuring that your field is set up so you've got um, a linear fence, a long and narrow fence that can take three to four yows per metre. You're giving them a two to three day break rather than moving the fence every day, you'd move it every two to three days. But you just need to watch that if they eat all the leaf first, then their protein if they've only got bulb they're obviously going to be left with a lower protein diet and their intake will decrease um, when they've got that so that that helps make the decision between the two three-day breaks sheep aren't as complex as cattle so do you want to explain cattle now okay so cattle are uh, as you've rightly pointed out are uh, far more complex in their transition and it's also um, much more important and the one thing to point out with transition uh, in cattle when it goes wrong is that you're likely to have a series of effects at the very severe end uh, if you particularly uh, adult cattle not so much the younger cattle but adult cattle and in particular uh, wintering dairy cows who are the most aggressive eaters 
and are the riskiest livestock class to be mismanaged on beet. If they are wildly mismanaged and they are given two kilograms of dry matter more on any given day than what they were the day before, then you can expect on a mob basis that you'll have significant clinical acidosis. So remembering for a 20 tonne crop, that's a single square metre extra than they were the day before. Now this is in the early stage of transition, so later on um, they'll be, of course, they'll be eating in the end up to 12 kilos. But what we're saying is that the daily increase over that period can't be more than that and shouldn't be anything close to that actually because you'll see more trouble. And if it does get to two kilograms or above and particularly often gets to three kilograms extra, then what you'll see is 5% of that group that will be on the ground and they won't be able to get up, they'll be on the ground and approximately half of them, if they're not treated promptly and effectively, uh, can go on to die. So there's a significant issue if um, transition is mismanaged in beef, particularly in wintering dairy cows. I'll be really plain here. There's no reason at all to have the slightest issue. It's all easily preventable and easily managed. But um, there is a risk there if it's mismanaged. Uh, therefore, um, knowing what that crop yield is and allocating that really effectively becomes very important. And there's a couple of components of that that we'll talk about, uh, I guess, in series. The first of these is uh, if we're beginning with adult and we, we might start with um, either suckler, suckler cows or adult steers, so 18-month-old uh, steers or heifers or dairy cows, then we would normally start them on one to two kilograms of fodder beet, dry matter there's on the first day, and it would be at the minimum a 14-day period before they had moved their way up to almost full intakes. So the way that we would work that is that we would start them on one to two kilograms and we wouldn't move them on a mob basis until we we're confident that all the animals in that mob were eating the bulb and then we would increase them one kilogram of dry matter every second day and keep doing that until ultimately they begin to leave fodder beet behind. Now, <clears throat> what that practically means is that we have to pay attention to the whole of the group First and foremost, we have to understand what the yield was so we can allocate that and we have to allocate that easily. Now, a practical thing for the UK audiences, particularly the Scottish uh, audience, is that most of the crops that you grow will be uh, 20 tonnes of dry matter there or thereabouts, probably historically a little bit under that, but not too many of them will be too far over that. So going back to what we said before, given that uh, 500 mil or 50 centimetre rows, are still, or 450 or 50 centimetre rows are still uh, most of the crops that are around there. On a practical level, it means that for a 20 tonne crop, you have one, approximately anyway, one kilogram of dry matter for every metre of row in front of you. So what we would normally do in those cases is that we would go, uh, feed them across the rows, and then you could calculate that if you're giving one metre for every animal in this case, then that's one kilogram of dry matter in for a 20 tonne crop. Now, it's really important to get your yield. Uh, as a practical reality in transition, if your yield is under 20 tonnes, then it doesn't hurt to pretend that it's bigger than it is because it means that your transition will be a little bit slower and you've built some uh, buffer into the system. And what we would ordinarily do is that we would work our yields 
in terms of five ton lots and we would set the transition at the top end of that five ton. So for example, let's pretend that your yield came back at 17 ton, then I would set your transition uh, yield at 20 tons and I'd set all of your calculations that you move forward on 20 tons, which would practically mean you had one kilogram of dry matter for every metre of row that you used. And if you're allocating one metre for every animal, then it gets pretty simple to work out how many rows you're giving on that basis as you move forward. So some practical things about transition beyond that allocation. Well, we mentioned in the last uh, podcast that, that if you're putting cattle on and you're locking them on, so they're going on that crop and they're not coming off that crop right from the start, that that headland is very important. If you've got a layoff paddock next door that you're walking from, note that that six metre headland is still very important because animals won't make use of the whole face if they can't walk behind the more dominant animals. So it becomes really important to, to make sure that there's at least six metres of that. Uh, on a practical level, um, that can be uh, cleared out it can be cleared out with a beet bucket and in short of a beet bucket, it can be done with a normal tractor bucket. You can flip the edge over and put it down uh, in front and sort of scrape forward. So you're sort of effectively scraping them away and then flip it over, pick it up and take it out. But, uh, you know, in general, whatever needs to be done, that headland is a, a principal component of effective transition. Assuming that you've got the one metre per cattle beast and you've got six metre headland to do it, then the other practical component about transition is that supplementary access and the timing. Now, the first thing is that we would normally uh, allocate carefully on that dry matter. And I should add on a practical level here, if you put the hot wire on top of the row, then the cattle will eat the row under the hot wire. And if you've got it directly on top of that row, they can't reach the second row behind it. If you put the hot wire behind the first row, then they eat the row that you've given them and they'll also eat the row behind it. So they can eat approximately uh, almost 50 centimetres under that row and they will do without any difficulty. So assuming that you've got that one metre, then you're uh, able to allocate them without too much trouble because you can easily work from your yield on what you're giving them. But the other component of their diet to begin with has to fill them up. So what we work with dairy cows in general, we would say that if we're starting on one to two kilograms of dry matter a beet, then in the first week, they'll have about eight kilos of something else in their diet. Now, uh, pasture is the cheapest and easiest way to do, but it's not always uh, possible to be done with various soil types and weathers, for example, it might not be possible. And so in that case, you have to feed something out that you know that they'll eat, and that means that they have to have access to it and it has to be palatable. So for example, it's not possible to fill them up with straw and beet. They're not going to eat enough of that straw. What will happen in the end is they begin to put more and more pressure on the hot wire. That was a significant problem with us in the early days. So the, the other eight kilos of their diet has to be something reasonably palatable and that they have to all have access to it. So, for example, uh, depending on your mob size, putting out uh, medium rounds into a bale feeder might not be a very effective way to do it because there's a lot of animals that are excluded from that. Therefore, they'll be hungry, they put pressure on the lines, and they eat in a different fashion. So it's really important with that supplement to get the allocation that you're going to give them right and to make sure that they all have access to it. On another practical level, uh, particularly for dairy cows and for the adult, so the 18-month-old uh, steers and heifers, when they're being brought onto it, 
they're going to be on a minimum of two kilograms of supplement after transition. Now that, when we say supplement, that might just be pasture. And that's the most productive way, particularly for the beef animals, just two kilograms dry matter of uh, pasture grazed every day and as much feed as they can eat. But if they're in uh, wet environments where they're being locked on and they're fed a conserved feed, then you have to be careful that you include that feed, whatever it is, right from the beginning. So a not uncommon problem in transition is that they might be grazed on pasture to make up most of their diet in that first week when eight kilos or so of you know, other feed is required. And then in the next week, that might be halved, and it usually is. It goes down to about four, uh, three to four for the steers and about four for the dairy cows in the second week. And then the third week and thereafter, it goes down to two consumed. Now, what sometimes would happen is that they would go through the first two weeks and then they would put two kilos of something brand new, often straw, that they weren't that interested in anyway in front of them before they were actually effectively completely transitioned. And so what happened then, it would wobble them, it would throw them off their diet a little, they'd be a bit hungrier, and then they'd eat differently on the beat. So there's some, some practical aspects of some supplementary feeding that come into play, particularly if you're using larger mobs. Another practical component of um, feeding them is to use the timing of that supplement to your own advantage. In the last podcast, we pointed out that um, it's a common misconception that cattle automatically and universally really like beet and eat at it hungrily. Now, it is true once their head's switched on to eating beet that they do eat at it really hungrily and, and overwhelmingly, 99% or so, will eat it vigorously and well if you've transitioned them onto it without any difficulties. There's very rarely more than a 1% tail, but it's not true in their first uh, exposure to it that they'll go at it and they'll eat it hungrily. They all like the leaf, but it often takes a while for them to get onto the bulb. Even if they've seen it the year before, or in some of our cases now they've seen it for more than 10 years, it'll, it'll typically always be the same. So in the, first, um, in the first couple of kilograms that you're feeding out, when it's allocated carefully, it's often sensible to use uh, their daily cycle of appetite to your own advantage. That is, put them on before you're feeding the other supplement. Um, I hear this still occasionally, it's put out there that what you need to do is fill them up with fibre and fill them up with everything else and then put them onto the beet as a way of preventing rumen acidosis. This is completely false and it's counterproductive and it often produces uh, a significant proportion of the group that you have there who then won't eat the beet. So they're already full, you put them on, they're not interested anyway, and it can take a lot longer to get the whole of the group onto eating beet. On a practical level, what happens is after a few days, if you use that to your own advantage, use that appetite cycle to your own advantage, after a few days, the head will switch on to eating beet. And at that point, you can then move the whole mob up fairly carefully and uniformly without any difficulty. Now, if in the first period of this, you've got lots of supplement going in before they go onto the crop, what you tend to find is that 25 or 30% of them will be quite slow. And so you start to get a, a non-uniform group. And that always results in trouble in transition. So that supplement is best given, particularly when you're beginning in the one to two kilogram basis after they've been on the beat and after they've eaten it. And they should have access to it for the rest of the day. Um, in terms of the preparatory things before cattle go on, uh, adult cattle aren't um, particularly susceptible to clostridial deaths, not in the way that the younger cattle and certainly not in the way that sheep are, but it doesn't take 
um, one or two to die before you pay for the cost of vaccination because clostridial vaccination is really cheap. So although it's not universally true with dairy cows, it would be universal with beef steers that they're a full clostridial vaccination program before they go on. Um, we'll talk a little more about the weaners in a moment, but it becomes more important with the weaners. It is important to note, though, though that the clostridial deaths that they do suffer uh, if they're not vaccinated are the standard clostridium perfringens type D. So on occasion, I've heard people explain that they require um, more sophisticated clostridial vaccines. It's not true. And, uh, you know, our largest groups, we, um, we would routinely use five in one as an example. And as long as they're vaccinated well and uh, properly with a full program before they go on, then that has a protective effect. Um, for the younger stock going on, uh, they also would have a drench. And for the beef animals and for the dairy cows, while they're on the crop, uh, we would ordinarily uh, supply them with whatever trace elements uh, that region is likely to be inadequate in. And as, a, as we mentioned before, with uh, sheep, but in general terms, uh, very high water loads and really high urinary outputs uh, tend to be a problem. But the other aspect in cattle in particular that seems to be an issue is that they have a very high soil intake. Um, we've studied this for many years, right from the earliest times to quantify what that soil intake was and to look very carefully to see if there were any issues in the gastrointestinal tract, etc. And I'll be really plain on it. There are no issues at all with quite high soil intake, none whatsoever not in terms of damage to the gastrointestinal tract or impact on intake or anything else. But in certain areas where the soil is high in molybdenum, for example, then you can have issues where copper will be tied up. So there's, again, local veterinary advice is advised on this, what uh, trace element inadequacies are likely to be seen. It's absolutely standard in uh, beef animals to make sure that their selenium, copper, cobalt, iodine status is uh, completely adequate you're likely to see uh, production deficits if that isn't true. So in those cases, they would be drenched uh, for um, gastrointestinal nematodes and given some uh, reasonably long-acting uh, form of trace element supplementation. That might be in the form of copper boluses, that might be in the form of long-acting selenium or in, um, for example, the use of multi-min or some of the um, equivalent products but it would be universal in beef animals to achieve the highest outcomes to use something along the lines with that. Sorry, just just to kind of get familiarised then, so for the for the adult stock, we're looking to plan and stick to the plan, make sure that they have got clostridials if there's young stock there. We're starting off with one to two kilos of beet and then increasing by a kilo of dry matter every second day, but only when they're eating um, and you know they're all eating and yes. to be able to to be able to to do that you obviously must know the yield and you must know the dry matter yes. we're looking at a 21 day period we're looking at having headland and we're again looking to have this one meter of linear fence per animal one thing though if we're increasing the beat by a kilo of dry matter every second day we're obviously decreasing the supplement be it if it's hay silage if it's grass, how, how do we go about decreasing that amount of forage? Yeah, on a practical basis for the larger cattle stock, um, often because the mob sizes are, are quite large, um, the 
the practical reality is it would be set at about eight kilos for dairy cows, which will have a slightly higher intake. And for most of the 400, 450 kilo beef steers and heifers that would be going on as 18 months old, it would be set for something around seven kilos of feed other than beet in that early for the in early stage for the first week. And it would just be held at that for the first week, just simply for convenience. Um, in the first day or two, it's likely that that's slightly under what their maximum intakes would be anyway. And so as that increase, the beating uh, take increases over that week, they're heading up towards their maximum intake. And then they're probably there or thereabouts at the end of that week. In the second week, that would normally go down to four kilos. And then the third week and beyond, they would be down to two kilos consumed. Now note, we say that's two kilos consumed because it depends a little bit on how you're doing that. Um, if you're putting it out in very wet weather and you're putting it out on the ground, you have to be uh, cognizant of the fact that you're going to have higher losses in that. And I think we're going to come back and talk about that in a moment um, specifically. But, but however it works, they have to have access to it and have a minimum of two kilos eaten. If they don't have that two kilos eaten in adult stock, their intake will go down. If they don't have access to adequate supplement in the transition period, there is no doubt at all that they're um, in greater risk of getting uh, ruminacidosis. But I should be clear in saying that that's not automatically because they have less fiber in the diet. It's because when they're hungry, because they can't get that other supplement, they change the way that they eat and they put more pressure on the feed reserves that are there. So what they tend to do is uh, eat themselves into a hole a lot quicker. And, and I, I say that because... It's a, uh, again, it's a common misunderstanding that you can put fibre into these animals and you avoid ruminacidosis. The idea being that the fibre causes them to ruminate, therefore that salivary input uh, buffers some of these acids and they don't get it. Um, in, in terms of avoiding ruminacidosis by mismanagement on beet, it's completely untrue. In fact, we've said in the previous, uh, previous podcast that the, the danger period for adult cattle is that period from seven to 10 days. And what that represents in adult cattle is when they get to somewhere around seven to eight kilogram intake of beet, that's called the death zone. And what's happening at that seven to 10 day period is by that stage, their head is up to full intakes. So they've got their head around eating it. And if you let them, they'll go and eat what they would at 14 days which pretty dependably is 2.2% of what they weigh. So say for the adult dairy cows, that's a maximum of about 12 kilos. And for most of the steers, that's a maximum of about 10 kilos. And they'll, if you let them at that seven-day period, that's what they'll go and eat. But they're not ready to eat that. And that will be by far and away more than a two-kilo dry matter jump from what they are doing. So the principal time when uh, mismanagement causes stock losses on crop is that period at uh, seven to 10 days. And particularly in uh, older, heavier stock, it's that period that it coincides with that being approximately seven to eight kilograms. That's called the death zone. Now, every post-mortem that you do for a lost case will be full of supplement at that case. At that time there, they're uh, one week in, they're still on somewhere between the seven or eight kilograms or the three or four kilograms in the next week. They're never short of supplement at that period. Ruminacidosis is simply a reflection of the kilograms of dry matter of beet that they eat. The rest of their diet plays no role in protecting that if they're overeating those kilograms of beet. 
So it's a, a very important component to remember that that supplement is not going to save you from a misallocation. That allocation is a, a really, really important component. The supplement does change how they eat, though. If they're hungry, they eat faster and you don't want that. So those animals should be well fed through that period. And I know you're not the greatest advocate for ring feeders for feeding supplement. How would you advise people to, to feed the supplement? So um, some, uh, uh, the, the access to the supplement is really important. And uh, from a, wearing my production hat on it, the, the maximum production out of the beet crops is in adult cattle in particular. In a moment, we'll talk about the weaners, but in adult cattle in particular, the, the maximum production out of them is by restricting their supplement intake to two kilos fed. So they eat more beet, they have a higher metabolizable energy intake at that point, and they'll have more body condition change at that point. And live weight gain in the older beef animals is much stronger at that point. So from a, from a production point of view, I'm always um, suggesting to people that they be really careful the amount of supplement they feed after transition. The practical reality, though, is if you're not feeding that supplement out as either strip graze pasture or as some form of uh, conserved feed that's fed out along pasture or along the edge of a fence or under a wire in some way, then it's very difficult to achieve those low supplement inputs. Very, very difficult to do so. And so what I practically mean from that is if people are in a position where the weather means that they can only really either put bales out beforehand and then move, cut the plastic off them and um, you know have plastic bale feeders put on top of them, for etc. And I know that happens uh, in, in Scotland and in the UK in general, as it does in some of the wetter parts of New Zealand too, you, you pretty much have to accept that you're not going to be able to use the low supplement models. Now in dairy cow, that that simply means you get lower body condition gains and you also spend a whole lot more in terms of your total winter feed bill. In beef animals though, in that period, it automatically means that you have significantly restricted your live weight gains. So the, the amount of uh, supplement that they eat after that transition period will very, very much impact on your live weight gains. So as a practical level in, um, in transition to do so, the layoff paddock is uh, often an effective way to do this because it means when I have to give them eight kilos or seven kilos in that first week and four kilos in the second week, I've got space to do it. Now, there's a couple of practical ways that you can do this in very wet conditions where you have to use bale feeders. And what it amounts to is putting more bale feeders out, enough bale feeders out that you can pretty much guarantee that your entire mob can get around it when they want to and then fencing them off and letting them on for restricted periods of time. Now, in, uh, in transition, that doesn't really matter. You can let them eat as much supplement as they want because they'll eat that supplement and they'll go on to the beat, as long as you get the timing right, of course, with regard to what we said before. But at the end of that transition, when you want to reduce that, what you end up doing is putting them on restricted time to have that supplement. And again, that can be a little bit tricky. Another alternative, um, which is used in very wet areas here, is that you can put out, uh, often through pit silage and uh, silage wagons, you can put out uh, seven days worth of um, silage on the ground and in a long line, and you can have a wire, the uh, cattle side of it, that you restrict them off that, and then at a certain time of the day, 
you move that wire over so you give them access to it and you can quickly work out um, you know, they, they eat two kilograms in approximately two kilograms of solid in approximately 20 minutes and of course you know how much you put out so you can work that out within no time at all in a couple of days and what that means is you only have to go out once in pretty you know wet climates you're only going across the paddock once with the tractor and wagon to put that across and that can be a very effective way to do it particularly towards the tail end of transition in the early stage of transition they're often eating uh, so much more as we said eight kilos in the first week four kilos in the second that that can be a little bit harder to do but uh, from a practical point of view it can work very well and if you're chasing higher production then it's very difficult to use bale feeders it's a misconception that they'll eat the right amount they won't <laughs> they'll, they, they'll eat that silage because it's easy for it and it's palatable it's easy to eat than the beet they'll eat much more of it than you want them to and it costs you money so looking towards weaners or young stock then jim how does that vary how you feed those on beet yeah so when it comes around to either dairy replacement or beef um, weaners so six months old or so there's a couple of practical things that we would normally do in transition the first one is that uh, they are far far more fussy on the cultivar and the condition of the crop than what the adult animals are by and large dairy cows it doesn't matter what cultivar you had they'll pretty much eat everything in front of you and their various uh, requirements are a lot lower as well when you get around to the, the particularly the light dairy replacement heifers they are spectacularly fussy on what they'll eat both agronomically managed crops and also the cultivar that's involved underneath it so uh, first and foremost one of the things that makes transition harder or easier are those two issues before you even start the second component is that they're typically much slower to get on to beat, much slower. So it's difficult with them, even if you're putting some pressure on them, to get them switched on to eating beet inside of about a week. So what many people would do in those systems now, the experienced operators, they would have a period of time before they were putting them onto the crop directly where they were introducing them to beet by putting beet out on the grass paddock wherever they were and then running it over with the tractor wheel so it smashed it up a bit. It doesn't have to be a lot of beet. And over a period of several weeks and some times while they're, they're getting them grazing anyway, uh, they'd be putting the beet out and trying to get more and more of them onto the idea of eating beet, getting them used to the bulb and what's inside it. So by the time they come around to go onto the crop and begin that transition, more and more of them have had experience with it. On a practical level, there's something else that uh, works for young stock, and that is it's much easier to do when it's warm and dry. If it's cold and it's wet, uh, it's, it's far more difficult to get the weaners uh, going on beat. They've got a lot happening at that point in their life when you're transitioning them on, and it's much more difficult to get them on uh, in, in poor weather. So we typically encourage the, um, the younger animals to start earlier on the crop, so, you know, in, for us, it's well into autumn, halfway through autumn or so. In most cases, your live weight gains will be better on beet at that point than they will be on autumn grass anyway. And uh, you do lose a little bit in terms of crop yield, but you're eating into it, so it's not, uh, you know, it's not a great loss. So what, what ordinarily would happen with most of them is if they've been weaned, it's different with the dairy replacements, of course, but if they're beef and they've been weaned, then they have to learn to be behind a hot wire uh, an awful lot of our weaners would have come from pretty uh, hard environments and so um, what we would normally do is have a period of approximately three weeks where we put them on really good quality grass 
and teach them about a hot wire. So at that point, they're um, adapting to uh, higher energy feeds and uh, higher and higher intakes, and that makes their uh, transition onto beet easier as well. And they would have beet put out over that period where they could get used to it. When they're put onto the crop, they're approximately half of everything that the adult stock were. So we normally start them on about half a kilo of dry matter. And if you like, day one, and, and then we would, once they're all eating it, we'd move it up half a kilo every second day. But, but day one and two will often be extended for about a week. So what that would mean is that you would start at half a kilo of dry matter, but in most cases, people would find that it's much harder to get the whole of the mob eating bulb. Uh, like the adults, they'll all eat the leaf, but it's much more difficult to get the uh, whole of the mob eating bulb uniformly before you start moving up. So in most cases, that'll take five to seven days. We said with the adult animals that you had to be quite careful with the timing of your uh, supplements. So using that daily appetite cycle to your advantage, well, that's a critical component of the weaners. Uh, if you don't, you'll ordinarily end up with a group of 25 or 30% of them who eat very little beet. And they'll keep going that way until they absolutely have to later on, and then you can run into trouble with them. It's worth saying also that uh, trace element status of the young stock uh, is a much more important component than it is even of the older cattle. So this is particularly seen in the, the very aggressive um, steer feeding systems that are on beet for a couple of reasons. In most cases, they'll be on the crop longer. So it's not uncommon for the weaners to be on for 150 days. So they'll start in autumn, they'll be right through the winter and they won't get off that crop until the grass is really hopping in spring. So in those cases, they're on a very different diet and depending on what supplement they have, you have to be quite careful with their trace element status and that. Um, they're almost always uh, drenched for gastrointestinal nematodes before they go on as well. And as we mentioned before, they're much, much more sensitive to clostridial deaths than the older cattle. So it's really important that they've had two clostridial vaccines at least three weeks apart before they go on to that crop. Um, in certain circumstances with that, the, the losses can be really strong. And again, it's just the plain clostridial vaccination over that period. Now, I, I might add one um, thing here in terms of just uh, practical use of the paddock. On occasion, people will um, say, well, I've already got the paddock planted and you know, I've got more stock than fits one per metre uh, across the face that I wish to use. You know, What other options have you got? Well, uh, one thing that we do in those circumstances is if you're using a tractor bucket or it's most commonly a beet bucket in New Zealand, but you can do it with a tractor bucket without a lot of trouble. If you've got a rectangular paddock in front of you and you're on the short end of the rectangle where you're intending to do it, it's not particularly difficult to make a corridor up the middle of the paddock. Now, as long as that corridor is um, more than six metres wide, so you know, usually it'll be 10 metres wide, you can put that beet to one side and particularly in late autumn and winter, that'll last without any difficulty at all for several months on the ground and you don't need it to last that long but you can put it to one side till after transition. And now you can set lines up on the left and the right, if you like. So what that means is that you can, uh, in most cases, you'll have more room than you need. So it's a very uh, easy way of working that through. So you've got uh, an eating face on the left-hand side, an eating face on the right-hand side, and you've effectively made yourself a corridor up the middle. And of course, after transition, 
um, you you can uh, move that. So if needs be, because beyond transition, they're eating until they they're leaving beet behind. So it, um, what you can do in that uh, sense is then have the line diagonally. So for example, if you need more space along that line rather than having it just across the short edge of the rectangle in front of you, after transition it can be the line can be diagonal so it gives every animal that meter that they need and you're just moving diagonally up the paddock. So there's various innovative ways that you can uh, make yourself that space. But it is extremely difficult to transition those animals effectively if you don't make that space. Uh, it's the number one cause of problem in transition. No space, poor allocation. I think we've we've had a lot of people just growing it for the first couple of years, and uh, as with when people try new things, there's quite often problems. And I think it would be maybe quite good if we could just speak about some of the problems and how you've experienced them in New Zealand and how how you've kind of overcome them. And one that would first come to mind from what you've just said there is people are always very good at wanting their their full their full field to be full of fodder beet so it's going to be planted from fence to fence or dike to dike but but now we're we're saying right we want a, a six to ten meter headland so what happens for these guys that have planted the beet fence to fence well um it's impossible to transition cattle effectively without having a headland i'll, I'll be really plain on that um if they're if they're dairy cows uh you run into trouble very quickly um, and I should point out, in most cases, um, the the uh, the risky, the most risky animals, of course, are dairy cows because they're the most aggressive eaters. But uh, the next are the heavy steers. And as you get down to uh, replacement heifers and weaners, it's very, very uncommon to see overt clinical acidosis in those groups. If you get them wrong, they they regulate their intake a little bit better than the older animals do. And if you get them wrong, you you don't commonly see the same trouble that we mentioned before with dairy cows, for example, where 5% of them will be on the ground. What you would automatically see in them is you may see the odd one that's, um, well, in the New Zealand farmer parlance, they would call it wobbly. So you might see the odd wobbly one. Uh, when they get mold, rumen acidosis, it affects the calcium uptake from the gut very promptly. So they get a form of milk fever and they're, they're quite wobbly, drunk looking. And you do see that in the heaviest steers. You don't see it that commonly in the young weaners, but where it shows up very clearly is in live weight gains over the next 70 days. And the way that that shows up is it changes their intake. So it's called feed aversion. And it means that you've taught them not to eat fodder beet. And of course, you only make money out of them by having maximum intakes. And you've taught them very well not to have maximum intakes. And they don't forget that lesson and they hold it for the whole of the season. So the first thing is that um, the farms would understand really clearly that particularly in beef animals, it's an extremely important component to make sure that that transition is good because if the transition is poor, you pay for it. So therefore, uh, really whatever effort is involved in making that uh, headland, you should go and do it. It's not that difficult uh, really in any paddock, even with a conventional tractor buck, it takes a little bit longer but it's not that difficult to use the edge of the bucket to push beet out of the ground. They come out of the ground, even the deeper varieties come out of the ground quite easily, particularly when it's moist, and you can put that to one side. So my suggestion and what we would have done in the early days was exactly that. We would suggest to people that you promptly made a 10-metre headland. Um, and 
wherever possible, make that headland uh, parallel to the rows. So you know, often what happens in a rectangular paddock where people are using the short end is that, of course, the contractors will plan it along the long axis and then you're going to feed it up using square metres. Now, you can do that and you can use square metres and you can do it very effectively. There's no reason not to. But in most cases, people will have uh, more stock on than the metres will allow them, number one. And two, they're then working on uh, their allocation in terms of square metres. And while you can do that without any trouble, particularly when you used to beat, some of my most experienced farmers would do that regularly even now, uh, it's much harder when you're learning beat to do that. It's much, much easier to do allocation on rows. You can do it very accurately and you can do it very well. So sometimes the extension of that headland idea is to make the corridor we spoke about um, up into the crop so you've got uh, adequate feed and you can then very accurately feed out the, uh, the rows with it. That would be my suggestion in cases where people have a narrow rectangular block where they've planted it to the four points. Okay. Another common problem we hear is they've put in, say, 50 animals and they're, the majority of them are eating, but say there's five of them that are hanging back, they're around the ring feeder, they never see them coming forward to the beat. What should they do with those animals? Um, if that's in the early stage of transition, uh, those animals are still able to be trained onto the beat. And the principal issue in that case would be their supplement timing. So uh, that's not uncommon. We said this before that there was some really poor information. You still hear it occasionally, not so much anymore in New Zealand, but you still hear it that you should fill them up with supplement first and then put them onto the beat because you've got to stop them from getting acidosis. It's, you know, it's not true at all. And in fact, paradoxically, it in encourages acidosis because you get these animals that aren't eating, therefore you get others that are eating more. So if it's in the early stage of transition, you can correct it by just removing the supplement. So, or at least that period when they're eating the beet in the morning, you know, when you're moving that line in the morning, make sure that they um, don't have access to that supplement and that they haven't had access to that supplement for a couple of hours. And in most cases, it only takes, particularly with adult cattle, it only takes a couple of days to switch their head onto it. Um, I, I should be really clear for the audience here because I hear this occasionally. People say, oh, no, you know, you always get a tail end who really don't want to eat the beet. Actually, that's not true. Um, it's not true. It's, it's extremely rare. And I say this from having uh, developed and put into practice a lot of very large-scale systems. So the largest of our um, single-unit operations would have 5,000 adult cattle on them, and you know, often in groups of 500 or 1,000. And it's extremely rare to have uh, a tail end that are genuinely not eating if the transition is just managed appropriately. If it's over 1%, something's going wrong. So you really don't see that group. So if it's a smallish mob and you're seeing five, you're doing something wrong. What you might be doing, well, the most charitable um, problem that you would have is that you're providing them lots of supplement at that period and they're never hungry. They don't particularly want to eat beet anyway. And until you take that supplement away, they won't. Unfortunately, if it's a little bit later in the transition, what it could be, uh, particularly if it's into that second week, it could be that you burnt them. They've had a mild uh, dose of rumen acidosis, even if it hasn't shown, and you've taught them that eating a lot of beet is a bad thing. And they learn that lesson very well, and they don't forget it. And if, you, if they're missed in the group in larger mobs, then what would happen is they'll eat enough beet to stay alive, but their live weight gains will normally be terrible, and they don't make you any money. In those cases, the animals are best removed. It's not that they'll do any more damage, I should say, on beet. 
it's not. They, they won't do any more damage to themselves by on that beet. They just won't eat a lot, therefore they won't grow. So it's just not a, a wise economic move to do it. But my first advice to the folk who uh, come across that would be think carefully about the timing of uh, moving the beet line and moving the supplement. Now, if you're allocating that well, there's no reason not to do it. It's a, it's a learned skill. It's a very straightforward skill. There's nothing to it. If you're allocating the beet on a dry matter basis and you're doing it well, then you should be doing that before they go onto the supplement and then they're removed off the beet, particularly for the first four odd days. That's how it would normally work. And then they're put onto the supplement to eat as much as they're going to eat. Um, it works to your advantage then. And you won't normally have a tail doing that. Okay, and the last kind of problem I'm going to put to you, I'm going to change species and look at yows and lambs. So sometimes we hear from folk that say, I've put them in a, a field of beet and now they're not eating it. So how can how can that be prevented? Okay, so with sheep it'll be different. Um, as we mentioned before, um, they're much more sensitive to uh, the agronomic status of the crop and also to the cultivar. So if the crop's been um, poorly treated agronomically, and um, for the audience that uh, haven't listened to the webinars on uh, either sheep or, or later on agronomy, it's just worth noting here that um, the requirements and performance indicators for agronomy for grazing fodder beet crops are very different to the traditional sugar beet agronomy. Now, it's, it's, uh, for sugar beet, there's um, production and economic disincentives for using a lot of nitrogen on those crops. Um, of course, it causes impurities in the bulb, and so you get docked on that when you go to the factory with those bulbs. So uh, a very long period of time and some excellent research over many, many years from British Sugar demonstrated quite well that there was a, an upper limit of the amount of nitrogen that should be applied to those crops so that you avoided that and you maximised the amount of sugar that was grown in the in the bulb. Well, we're not interested in the sugar in the bulb. We're interested in total dry matter and we're very interested in increasing the nitrogen in the bulb. And another effect of more nitrogen on the crop is that you grow a greater proportion of leaf and the leaf that you do grow holds more nitrogen in it. Now, that's really positive in terms of palatability and it's really positive in terms of the use of that protein for growing animals. So our agronomy is very different from traditional sugar beet agronomy. Now, if crops are agronomically um, challenged, and that will normally have two uh, immediate effects. Number one, um, they either won't have a lot of leaf, that leaf will have disappeared in autumn, or it will disappear pretty promptly in the first cold weather. Then what you're dealing with uh, at the same time is normally a bulb that hasn't been particularly well grown. So beet originally grows into the ground and then as it grows bigger after that, it grows out of the ground. And there's a pretty strong relationship between how well that crop's been treated agronomically and how palatable it is. Now, sheep are pretty sensitive to palatability in uh, those crops, both palatability as a result of agronomy and also palatability as a result of different cultivars. So uh, presented with uh, sheep in particular that are on a crop that really aren't interested in eating it, if we were, the probability is the, the, the most likely reason for that is that that crop very likely doesn't have a lot of leaf, doesn't have a lot of good quality leaf, and it's not a particularly palatable crop or cultivar for that matter. And that can be a difficult uh, one to get around. I'll make no bones about that. 
if you're stuck with a crop like that, it can be a little bit difficult to use uh, as a grazing crop. That's why we go to such trouble to make sure uh, agronomically we produce a different type of crop. However, it is possible in the early stages that, again, the timing of the other feed that people have used can come to play. So, for example, if they're co-grazing pastures, uh, they go onto it, they like to nibble at the leaf, but you really haven't got uh, either sheep or cattle moving on the crop until they've been taught to eat the bulb. And you know, if it's not particularly palatable and they're full of a supplement before they go on, it's not uncommon that they're not going to go and eat very much of that bulb. Uh, I'll, I'll add one thing to that. That's particularly the case with um, hogs. So if you've if you've got younger growing out stock on that, um, you, you get all sorts of reports about how you can't feed hoggets on on beet because you know they don't have enough protein or they don't grow. And it's completely false. We've got plenty of people who do it at large scale and do it really well. But to do it, you have to be very careful with the cultivar you select and the way that you uh, approach it agronomically. And it's really difficult if you haven't got that in front of you when you come to eat it, and it's very difficult to solve. The only part remedy that you can do is to use very good quality supplement because you're not going to use much of it. You're going to push them onto the beet, and it's often got to have a fairly high protein content. So either good quality pasture or really good quality silages. It's a difficult one to get around at that point. Okay. And finally, I think it's very fair to say our climate here in Scotland isn't the most favourable at times. Uh, and it is absolutely essential that producers have got a contingency plan in place for in case ground conditions are unfavourable for feed and beet, obviously, in the field in situ. What type of contingency plans have you seen in New Zealand that work well for weather? Um, it goes back to design and in those areas where we uh, are prone to uh, extended periods of really wet weather and in cases flooding, um, we would normally do one of two things. The, the usual one is that we'd make sure that we had uh, shelter, uh, even if it was a distance from the beet paddock itself. So, for example, uh, the use of a lane um, is, is reasonably common. Somewhere where we had a, something that was relatively firm underfoot and we could get them off for those periods where it was really wet. If the soils are in that area uh, tend to bog to the point where they're going to be an extended period of time on that, the usual approach is to have in reserve um, lifted beet. So what happened is that the beet would be lifted up either early in the season and there'd be a fair feed store of that lifted beet that could be used. I mean, typically it's not very common for it to be used for more than a few days, perhaps a week in the worst sort of circumstances. But what it means is that they could be put up somewhere where it was a bit firmer underfoot, but they could continue to be fed well. Um, they have about a week memory. So if, if they've been um, carefully transitioned onto unrestricted intakes on beet, and then for whatever reason they have to be pulled off. So to give you some of the examples over the years, They've been uh, relatively close to a river and we've had flooding. Uh, I remember some of those times where a good portion of my beet crop went down the river as the river came up and over and took it with it. Well, in, in those cases, you might have uh, you know a short term where they're put in somewhere on high ground, for example, and you just can't get beet to them. They have to have silage or something else. They have about a week's memory where you can put them back on after that. You have a day or so where you're restricted, then they're pretty much back up to where they were before. As we said, the most important part of transition is between their ears. And so once they've learned that, they've got it for the season. Um, 
so it isn't automatic that if you have to pull them off, you have to feed them bead every day, for example. You don't. You can do that by feeding them silage or something else on it. The other one that we have some difficulty with is snow. So the area where our largest beet systems are is prone to snow. It's really cold. And um, sometimes that snow can be you know, a metre deep and then it can freeze. So there's some difficulties around that. There's a similar sort of problem around that. And, and the principle's the same. They can be fed something else for a period of time, but they do have to have a place in wet weather where they can get away from that and from a welfare point of view and a production point of view, where they can get away from it. So contingency uh, planning right from the start is typically a really good idea. There's also the opportunity opportunity to take animals into the sheds if there's if there's sheds and then potentially feed the beet in a in a mixed ration as well isn't there yes there is and and it doesn't even have to be in a mixed ration it can just be the bulbs can be put straight into the troughs particularly if they're bucket lifted so they've still got the leaf on them and they can be fed you know silage or something somewhere else it's a little harder to do but and there's some reasons why you normally don't get the same live weight gains when you do that in sheds as you do when you're grazing in terms of access, etc. But but as a short-term approach to it, it can work. Um, yeah, it can work really well. There was one more point we should probably make at the tail end of um, transition uh, for the audience, Kirsten, around what constitutes a well-transitioned animal, and. Um, the important point for the audience to recognise is that because the most important component of that transition is that they have learnt to regulate their own intake and to do that really effectively. And that's more important as you get heavier and adult uh, cattle in particular. The real performance indicator of positive transition is that by the end of that period, so 14 days is the sort of classic transition period, by then they're close to full intakes and then that third week they're moving up to where they're beyond, they're, they're at their maximum intake and the allocation is beyond their maximum intake. They are not transitioned until they're leaving beat behind. So it's a, a really important component to understand in both uh, dairy and beef transitioning for different reasons but they're not fully transitioned until they're leaving beet bulb behind. And uh, another relatively common transition issue that people can run into is uh, very long periods where they're on restricted intakes, um, thinking that they've been on it long enough, they know what they're doing. And as we sort of explained earlier, they don't. So the performance indicator for effective transition would normally be in the early days that it doesn't take very long for the entire group to get onto the bulb and then you can uniformly move them up without any pause at all for the older stock on one kilogram every second day, for the younger ones on half of that. But it means that the whole group can keep going up and then they can go up without any pause until they get to that point where they're leaving bulb behind. And it's, a, um, it's an important point to remember because even if the feed is restricted and must for other reasons, logistics, etc., it might have to be budgeted later on if you allow those animals to um, develop that unrestricted intake in the early part of that season, you give them a fighting chance. So, for example, sometimes the feed's been washed away or whatever's gone wrong, um, you might not have the ability to have unrestricted intakes of those animals for the whole of that season. Well, the, the options then are to restrict feed them by taking, 
taking them up to a certain level and holding them there the whole time um, or taking them up until they're unrestricted intakes and then winding them back slowly so you meet the feed requirements that you got in front of you, the feed budgeting requirements that is that you've got in front of you. And I would always suggest to the audience the latter. Um, restrict feeding animals means that you put your confidence always after that on that hot wire. And my experience, and my experience is pretty strong in these areas, is that hot wire will always come down sometime, always. It doesn't matter if it's this month, next month, or the third month, sometime that hot wire with hungry animals will come down. And by taking them up to unrestricted intakes, you never have that trouble. In fact, some of the very large operators actually turn the electric fence off. So once they're at restricted intakes, they put no pressure at all on the hot wire. Uh, and there's no difficulty in um, you know maintaining them. But even if you do have to wind them back, if you've taken them up to unrestricted levels, you give them a fighting chance later on. If they do perchance have that line come down, you don't have the same degree of problem that you have if you've never taken them up there in that season. Thank you, Jim. Uh, absolute massive amount of information there. And it really is fair to say, Jim, is a complete and utter fountain of knowledge of all things fodder beat. So many messages within this evening's podcast. Um, far too many for me to list, to be honest, at the end there, but a real, real insight and understanding into how transition works for the different species. Obviously, sheep are a lot more selective, self-regulate themselves nice and slowly, but cattle are really, really need a really planned transition period, something that's, that's stuck to um, all the way throughout the 21-day period. And as Jim's just said there, the... the trusting the electric fence is a is a massive massive element and batteries die things can go wrong so so knowing that you've got that comfortable kind of area knowing that that they've been trained properly is absolutely essential so thank you very much for joining us for this podcast we have got one more left in the series on health we've also got the webinars and they're running throughout november on sheep beef and dairy on fodder beat and they will be available on the fast website so thank you very much again jim and uh, we hugely hugely appreciate your time and knowledge uh, it's a pleasure to be here thank you <laughs>